I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we attempt to deal with very real things like grief. I'm Aaron Bishop, I'm here with my beautiful wife Rebecca. Hey! This week we are in Job chapters 1 and 2. We're finally kicking off this book of Job. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) All right. So I apologize for last week. Apparently I sounded like I was in a cave while Rebecca came through loud and clear. So I apologize for that. And hopefully this week we will not have that same issue. All right. So the book of Job. So you had a chance to listen to the... uh, the book recommendation that I gave last week. I did. It was fascinating. And um, although I kind of binged it and I was cleaning a house at the time, I did not I probably need to go back and read it or sorry, listen to it again to just really to kind of really it. absorb it. Yeah. But it really was a fascinating look at, Looking at Job through the eyes of trauma. Yeah, it is really good. I highly recommend it to anyone who has ever dealt with trauma, anyone who's dealing with someone in their life who's gone through trauma, PTSD, grief, any anything of that nature, and is interested in what the Bible has to say about trauma and how it represents trauma. It's an awesome and fascinating series of lectures. And it really does open your eyes to the recognition that the authors of the Bible, they were real people. They knew pain. Yes. They they dealt with pain. And those who have listened to the podcast for a length of time will remember that we've actually dealt with grief in a previous episode, uh, all the way back in the book of Numbers. Mm-hmm. There was a uh, episode when the spies go out and spy the land, and they come back and give their evil report. And then God gives them the judgment that they're not going to enter the land. They're going to wander around for 40 years before Israel is able to enter the land. And beginning from that point and through the next five chapters or so, we actually see Israel go through the five stages of grief. It's really cool to see it. And we learn from that that being in grief is no excuse for sin. Because some of the things that occur in the chapter, like the rebellion of Korah, the Israel trying to go ahead and attack after they've been given this judgment, some of the things that are going on are a result of their grief. They're they're dealing with depression. They're dealing with loss. They're dealing with denial. denial. And in these states, they end up sinning. They end up going against what God has said. And it was just such a, a profound picture of that. And we see that here again in the book of Job. We saw it again with Moses when he, Mm. when Miriam died. Right. And that was 
very shortly after that is when he actually struck the rock. Right. And it could be said that there was grief involved in that act as well. A lot of grief mixed in with frustration at the people. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, when you start mixing grief with other negative emotions, then who knows what can come out. But yeah, grief is a very real thing, and the Bible recognizes it. And we read stories of people going through grief throughout the Bible. And we get a really good picture of not just grief in Job, but trauma. Like like that overwhelming grief. I mean, if he lost a child, that's bad. He lost all of his children. And all of his possessions. And and all all of his honor. And all of his fame. And all of his everything. Who he was, basically. And he went from on top of the world to all the way to, to the nothing. bottom. Yeah. And I one thing that I really picked up from the lectures that I was listening to was the fact that the way this is written is not inherently a narrative. Na- yeah, not a narrative. It is more a story that has a point. It didn't necessarily happen in exactly this way. It didn't ex- necessarily happen where he was told all of these things simultaneously one after the other before the first one stopped speaking the next one showed up it may not have happened exactly that way it but it was told in a way to make it obvious the overabundance of agony that he just went through and right. it's telling it to get to the point not necessarily telling it in an exact chronological thing and and there was even a case made that maybe this guy wasn't actually a real person that maybe this right. is a, it's a fable or a parable that was a common story told i don't know that that's an accurate statement i think it probably is the jobab that was a son of esau but you know that's just my personal take on it and we don't know and last week we went through the the possibilities of who Job was, and that was one that I we didn't really bring up was the possibility that Job is uh, he's a character, he he's a fictional character, and that this book is a parable. Uh, there are, there are plenty of scholars out there who think that that Job never actually existed, that this is just a parable that was written uh, to discuss the ideas of grief, loss, trauma, righteousness, judgment, justice, mystery of God, and so on and so forth, and. Uh, there's a very real possibility that that is the case. Uh, unfortunately, we don't know. The translators of the Septuagint seemed to think that he was a real guy, somebody mm-hmm. that we read of previously. And both the Christian and Jewish traditions seem to think that he's a real guy as well, even though all three of them end up at different people. So anyway, let, let's go ahead and open up to Job and let's read chapters one and two, and then let's discuss a little bit further what this book has to say. Job chapters 1 and 2. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. Now that man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and his possessions were seven thousand sheep, three thousand camels, five hundred yoke of oxen, and five hundred female donkeys, and a very large household. That man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Now it was customary for his sons to hold a banquet, each on his own day, in his own house. 
they would send to invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the round of banquet days was completed, Job would send for them and consecrate them. He would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, Perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did every day. One day the sons of God came to present themselves before Adonai, and the Satan also came with them. Adonai said to the Satan, Where have you come from? The Satan responded to Adonai and said, From roaming the earth and from walking on it. Adonai said to the Satan, Did you notice my servant Job? There is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and spurns evil. Then the Satan responded to Adonai, saying, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, his household, and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will certainly curse you to your face. Then Adonai said to the Satan, Everything he has is in your hand, only do not extend your hand against him. So the Satan departed from the presence of Adonai. One day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job, saying, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing near them, when the Sabaeans attacked and carried them off. They also killed the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone escaped to tell you. While this one was still speaking, another came in and said, The fire of God has fallen from heaven and has burned up the sheep and servants. It has consumed them, and I, I alone, escaped to tell you. While this one was still speaking, another came in and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and raided the camels and took them all away. They also killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I, only I alone, escaped to tell you. While this one was still speaking, another came in and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine at their oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind came from beyond the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it collapsed on the young people, and they died, and I, only I alone, escaped to tell you. Then Job got up, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell to the ground, and worshipped. Then he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will return there. Adonai gave, and Adonai has taken away. Blessed be the name of Adonai. Through all this Job did not sin, nor did he cast reproach on God. Again the day came when the sons of God came to present themselves before Adonai, and the Satan also arrived among them to present himself before Adonai. Adonai said to him, Where are you coming from? The Satan answered Adonai, From roaming the earth and from walking on it. Then Adonai said to the Satan, Have you noticed my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and spurns evil. He still holds firmly to his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. The Satan replied to Adonai, saying, Skin for skin! A man will give up all he has for his own life. But now stretch out your hand and strike his bone and his flesh, and he will certainly curse you to your face. Adonai said to the Satan, Very well, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. 
So the Satan departed from the presence of Adonai and afflicted Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the top of his head. He took a piece of broken pottery to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Are you still holding firmly to your integrity? Curse God and die. He said to her, You speak as any foolish woman would speak. Should we accept the good from God and not accept the bad? Through all this, Job did not sin with his lips. When Job's three friends heard about all this calamity that had come upon him, each of them came from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They met together to come and mourn with him and to comfort him. But when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him and they raised their voices and wept. Each one tore his robe and threw dust into the air onto their heads. Then they sat with him on the ground for seven days and seven nights. No one spoke a word to him, because they saw that his pain was very great. All right, this first chapter, it can present quite a challenge to us. The idea that God sits in his heavenly council, and that... Satan, demons, evil spirits have access to his throne room to come and to to speak to him. It's not unique to the book of Job. There's actually a story in uh, 2 Chronicles where a very similar thing happens. So in 2 Chronicles chapter 18, beginning of verse 18, God is trying to, I guess, figure out how to entice Ahab to get to a certain place where he can be defeated in the field of battle. And we get this little insight into God's throne room. Uh, Beginning in verse 18, it says, Then he said, Therefore hear the word of Adonai. I saw Adonai sitting on his throne, and all the hosts of the heavens standing on his right and on his left. And Adonai said, Who shall entice Ahab, the king of Israel, to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this, and another said that. And a spirit came forward and stood before Adonai and said, Let me entice him. Adonai said to him, In what way? And he said, I shall go out and be a spirit of falsehood in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, Entice him, and also prevail. Go out and do so. And now see, Adonai has put a spirit of falsehood in the mouth of these prophets of yours. And Adonai has spoken evil concerning you. So this prophet goes before Ahab and tells him exactly what's happened. His prophets are prophesying falsehood. They're not prophesying truth in order to entice him to go to Ramoth Gilead so that he can die. So that he can mm-hmm. he can meet his end there, and there's another place where we see a very similar scene. It looks like you've already turned there, Rebecca. You want to read it? Psalm eighty-two. It's a psalm of Asaph, and it says, "God takes his stand in the assembly of God. He judges among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked?" Selah. So there we see it again. God sits in the council of the gods. He's he's in heaven. He's in his great council. He's the great king, the one presiding over this great gathering of spirits, of gods, of Elohim. And so this brings up a uh, an interesting question. Is this how it actually plays out yeah. in the real world? Is this a running theme, just, a, just another parable that is presented in scripture just to kind of give us an idea of how to grasp hold of how God works in the heavens? Or is this a story that the reader would be able to understand 
rather than an actual story of how things work. Right. That's what I just said, but you said it a different way, and so that's good. Now, there is a scholar, uh, Michael Heiser, who wrote a book called uh, The Hidden Realm. And in that book, he actually goes through all of these passages, and he goes through all of the occurrences of the sons of God, such as Genesis 6 and the connected to the Nephilim and Deuteronomy 32 and Ha'azainu, the Song of Moses at the end of Deuteronomy. In uh, the Hebrew, it says the sons of Israel in one place, that the nations were numbered according to the sons of Israel. Well, in the Septuagint and in the Dead Sea Scrolls, it actually says that they were numbered according to the sons, sons of God. Of God. Yeah. And so he goes through all of these instances throughout the Bible trying to figure it out. And he lands on the existence that there are actually is a God holds a court and all the spirits are able to come and go just like a king in his court. Mm-hmm. Uh, his enemies, his friends, everybody's able to come in and that uh, there's then this unseen realm around us of these spirits interacting with humanity. And the spirits are always being constrained by God's will. What he says goes, and by his law and by his uh, authority. So nothing occurs without God's authority in the realm, even when demons go to to do something. And I I would definitely agree with that aspect, just from our own personal experience. Right. We've seen that they absolutely have to answer to God, and they absolutely have to obey him. Right. So if you're interested in that idea, and this idea of the heavenly council and the sons of God, and the way that God interacts as it's being depicted here in the book of Job, then read the uh, the Heiser book, Unseen Realm. It's it's actually a pretty good read. And it uh, brings up some ideas that I hadn't previously considered. And that it might get you to start to challenge the existence of the world around you, especially if you're a rationalist or a materialist to a great degree, which most Westerners tend to be. Uh, it will really get you to challenge those preconceptions. So that just kind of is the overall setting for the majority of chapter one and two. Let's kind of go back and let's go through some of the specifics of this chapter. So we're told about Job. He was a righteous man. And what's interesting is Job has seven sons and three daughters. Yeah, so seven is the number of perfection? It's the number of the divine. And three is also a divine number. Right, so these, these numbers, they're meant to get us to think that Job's been blessed by God. Mm-hmm. Seven sons, three daughters, and then it continues on in verse 3. 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels. It's, I mean, this this man, he has been absolutely blessed by God, and it's it's on full display here in his possessions and in his family. His, his he was very... the greatest of all the people of the East. Right, and so that's one of the things that gets me to think that it was Jobab from Edom. Mm -hmm. Uh, Edom was to the east of where Israel was. And there's another little hint in here that may kind of point to that as well. When it says that the Sabaeans, I think your translation Mm -hmm. says the people from Sheba, the queen of Sheba was a Sabaean. No one really knows where where the Sabaeans are from, where they're actually located. There's some thought that it's on the Horn of Africa, you know, that little bit of Africa that kind of sticks out. But there's also thoughts that it may be in the lower part of the Arabian Peninsula, somewhere close to where Yemen would be today. 
Okay. Which would make sense if Job is an Edomite and he's a great king often, you know, to the east of Israel. And then he's going to have some enemies, some people trying to take him down, some people trying to steal his stuff, some people trying to come against him and, and hurt him. So that kind of lends itself to thinking that this is a real guy who was the son of Esau. So we have this great guy and his children would feast. Yeah, that was a really fascinating part of the lectures that I was listening to, was that women in the ancient Near East were not particularly held in high esteem. Right. That was their culture and the way that they viewed the world, and it was what it was. Women were not held in high esteem. And these women were. So Job's sons valued their sisters, and they showed it by honoring them, by inviting them to these feasts. Right. And there's there's kind of two ways to understand these feasts. It says that they each had one on his day. Um, there's some thoughts that this was, you know, they had their birthdays, and on the day of their birth, they would have a feast and invite all of their friends and their family, and let's have a great feast. And the other thought is that they just had a, a, day a of the meal week. cycle. They, right. Okay, we're going to go to his house this week, and we're going to go to his house next week, and we're going to his... Or, or, or even, even daily. every single day. Even yeah. daily, because there's seven of them, they could each host one night of the week. And uh, they're just kind of cycling through. And, you know, Monday, well, that's that's Bob's night. And Tuesday, well, that's... That's Jim's night, and Wednesday, right. that's Fred's night. So there's a couple ways to kind of understand that. that. Again, there's a lot of mystery, a lot of unknowns in this book. But it says Job did his sacrifices every day. So that's a fascinating thing at the end of... Well, yours says every day, verse 5. Verse 5, yeah. Mine says it came to be when the days of feasting had gone round that Job would send and set them apart, and he would rise early in the morning and offer ascending offering, the number of them all. For Job said, it might be the sons of sin and cursed God in their hearts, and this Job always did. Always did. Okay, so yours is always did instead of did every day. Right, so that's probably the word tamid. It's basically a word that just means regularly. When Aaron is told to set up the uh, menorah and to light it in the evening that's and right. trim the wicks, he, he does it. The word used is regularly. In that application, it is actually daily. So it just means that when they would have the feast days. And this kind of leads me to think that it's not a weekly cycle, simply because he would set apart, he would sanctify the days after the feasts. Mm -hmm. So if that's happening every them. single day, then he's sanctifying every single day, which if you've read through Leviticus, you know there's a lot of expectations right. on a person who's getting ready to offer a sacrifice. So it leads me to think that these feast days weren't a, a weekly cycle, yeah. but that it was a more spread out throughout the year regular cycle. One thing that I kind of picked up on when I read through this was not only just the, the number of animals listed, the guy was from Uz. He was from the east, and he would rise early in the morning and offer a sacrifice. All of these things, with the exception of us instead of Ur, all of these things sound like Abraham. Right. You know, Abraham was from Ur, not us, but he was a man with 
thousands and thousands of sheep and oxen and donkeys and all the things, you know. And yep. he was from the east, and he rose early in the morning to offer a sacrifice. All of that stuff is just kind of echoing Abraham. And uh, even his righteousness. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the righteousness that Job had is, is an echo of Abraham. And Absolutely. If this is a parable, then there's a good chance that that's all very purposeful. And there's a good chance that it's purposeful anyway. Even, even if it's Just to get us to think of just, just how righteous this guy is. Right. I mean, think of Abraham. This guy, he's, he's on par. He's up there. Right. So even though he's an Edomite, even though he's five generations from Abraham, and even though he's not of the line of promise, this guy seems to be doing pretty good yeah. as, as, as it comes to uh, maintaining his relationship with God. And so those little, yeah, those subtle hints in the text are just awesome to, to kind of highlight Job's righteousness, which makes what comes next all that more shocking. It, yes, shocking is definitely the word to use in this context. Like, it's so abrupt and violent and gut-wrenching. Yeah. So, Job's this perfect guy. He has all these things. He he is so good that he even sacrifices just in case his kids may have happened to sin while they were drunk at their feasts the night before. I mean, he is that kind of righteous guy. And then just immediately, verse 6, suddenly we're in the heavenly realm. We're getting a spyglass into God's throne room. And we see Satan coming to God and addressing him. And they kind of have a little conversation. So the Satan, Satan is not a name. It's not a proper name. That's correct. It is literally adversary. My translation calls it the Satan. It's because in the Hebrew it is Hasatan, which literally right. is the Satan. Right. Satan is literally adversary, so it's literally the adversary. Right. But that is when I was reading that and it said the Satan, I wanted to explain that. But this is the adversary. This isn't necessarily Lucifer or the top dog. Um, yeah, the the top evil guy, whatever. Okay, so generally the Satan is the top dog. It's the definitive this is the guy. Okay. This is the one that's on top of it all. A Satan, which we find throughout other places in scripture. In fact, uh an a- the first time we see the word is in the book of Numbers when the angel stands in front of Balaam's donkey as an adversary. A Satan God's can be anyone. He's not an adversary to God. He is an adversary Adversary that God has placed in the path of Balaam. Right. So, yeah, Satan is a title, just like God is a title. It's It's not a proper name. There are several possibilities for what the proper name of Satan is. I'm not really even going to get into that because it it really doesn't matter. He is the, the Satan. He is the adversary. But it's interesting when he asks him, where have you been? What are you doing? And he says, I've been roaming the earth and from walking on it. How does it go in the other verses? Going to and fro about the earth. Seeking whom he may devour. Right, right. The adversary is described in another place as a, a roaring lion who goes to and fro throughout the earth, seeking whom he may devour. It's the same wording there. Yep. Yep. It's also, interestingly enough, it's the same wording for when Noah sends out the first bird from the ark. Hmm. He sends out the raven first. 
and the raven goes to and fro about the earth and it does not return to the ark. It's a it's an interesting little turn of phrase that uh, could have some deeper meaning there, I and mean, maybe not. But uh, the Bible doesn't use words lightly. Lightly, yeah. And then God says, "Hey, have you thought about Job?" Right. That's so odd. That's so odd that I, it's like there's no prompting. There's no like, "Hey, you got a servant I can tempt." God's just like, "Hey, <laughs> come here, Mister Adversary. I want to show you this guy over here." Right. Look at this guy. This guy's perfect. He's the one who brings Job to Satan's attention. Yeah. Which is kind of frightening. It's it's like he's setting him up. Right. And that's hard to digest. It is hard to digest, especially with what Job has to go through. Right. With the fallout of this, this setup. And we know that, okay, Job gets all of his possessions returned and has more children than he had in the beginning at the end of the story. But that doesn't take away the trauma that Job is about to face because of this. Or the severe loss, because whether you have more children after losing a child, you still lost a child. There's no replacing that child. Right. It's often said that God is good and, and he is good, but he doesn't always only ever do good. And we actually get Job saying that later. Right. Shall we accept only good from God and not evil? And we saw that again in Isaiah 46 last week, where God is describing himself to Cyrus, Cyrus, the Persian king, where he says, I am the God who brings peace and creates evil. He is the source of evil, which kind of gets back to the whole intro the whole idea of life versus death and good versus evil knowing good and evil that is a quality of god we see that in genesis chapter three and if we say that the god of the universe the god of israel is only ever good we limit him and we make him less god we take away part of his great qualities as god We want to see him as only good because that fits into our paradigm, into our mental compartments, but that's not who he is. Right. It makes it more comfortable for us to deal with him and to accept him if he's only ever going to do us good. But we see here that's not the case. You know, the Joel Osteen, God wants only good for you. Well, talk to Jonah. Talk to Job. These guys had some very terrible things happen to them at God's Talk to say-so. David. Yeah. Talk to, mm-hmm. talk to any of the patriarchs. Talk to Abraham. Abraham, right. Talk to Joseph. I mean, yeah. these people, they suffered for God. They suffered very real hardship, very real trauma. And God didn't keep them from it. And but he walked with them through it. Walked with them through it. Exactly. And that's one of the things that's so interesting because we see we see Yeshua make a a statement very similar to what we read here to Peter at the uh in the Garden of Gethsemane. I think it's in the book of John where Jesus says, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I will pray for you. Not that you will be taken out of the trial but that your faith will be strengthened through it. Mm-hmm. And when you have come through, then turn and st- strengthen your brothers. 
And that's, that's so powerful that Jesus is saying, you know what? Satan is asking to sift you just like Satan's asked, asked to sift Job. Yeah. You're about to go through some real hardship. You're about to face some real stuff. And I'm going to pray that not that you escape it. I'm not going to pray that everything goes perfectly good for you always, ever, that you never experience hardship. I'm going to pray that as you go through it, God strengthens your faith. And that as you come out the other side, you're stronger for it. You're more powerful. And you're able then to pass that on to others who are about to go through their own crap. Right. And that, uh, in some ways, that kind of feels like some of the stuff that we've been through in Absolutely. previous years. Absolutely. As we've gone through some very difficult very, times, very dark in, times in different ways. And coming out of it with our faith intact, in fact, our faith stronger to a great degree. And knowing that we're probably going to face some more dark times. Right. We're going to probably face some more hardships but we've got the, the faith foundation that we can face that and we can help others that's the, when they go through it right and that's the thing right there is god puts people through these hard times just like he put peter allowed satan to sift him like wheat so that when he came through he could strengthen others and God has put us through hard times so that as we've come out of it, we can begin to strengthen others. And this podcast is part of that. But yeah, if you're going through a hard time, it sucks. It hurts. It is awful. It is awful. And you just want to do what Job's wife says. Curse God and die sometimes. Just get it over with. You know, in, in artwork... There's lots of depictions of Job's wife and mm -hmm. of this whole entire story. And many of them depict her as this vindictive, pointing her finger kind of. Right. Nag. Just, yeah. But there are plenty of them that also, in fact, there are majority of them that depict her as saying this in a loving way. like. Right. Just get it over with. Just go. Just be done. Right. Yeah. You're and in such torment right now, you'll be at peace if you die. Yeah. Yeah. And it's And she's going through this too. She is. And we kind of neglect that. But we do. We do. She's losing her children too. Right. She may not be going through the the sickness, the boils, but she just lost her entire family. She just lost her entire fortune. She just lost her security. And now she's about to lose her husband too. Right. She is going through some real crap. Right. And we like to judge her for her comment, but what one of us, when faced with that much hell, wouldn't honestly... Seek to do the same thing. Right. Right. So, Satan, when God brings Job to Satan's attention, he says, well, obviously he loves you. Obviously he's righteous. You put a hedge around him. I can't touch him. Nothing bad ever happens to him. You know, right. he's got that Joel Osteen life. Live your best life now. He's, he was doing it. <laughs> and so God says, all right, all right. I'll Just remove the hedge. Him. Go ahead. Do your worst. Just don't touch him. And so Satan goes through and basically destroys everything. And Job's response to that in verse 20 and 21 
is is so profound. He he gets up, he tears his robe, the the Mid Eastern sign of mourning. He shaves his head again, Mid Eastern sign of mourning, mm-hmm. and he falls to the ground and he does obeisance. He worships. He worships. He falls to the ground in his grief, in his mourning, in this tormenting loss, and he worships. I see um, Aaron and the sacrifice mm, yes. in this. Right. So what she's talking about is in Leviticus chapter 10, I think it is. Nadab and Avihu. The tabernacle's just been opened. They just went through the consecration. They dedicated the priest seven days. They offered the very first sacrifice. In fact, they may not even be done with that first sacrifice. And Nadab and Avihu, they do something. We're not sure what. They offer strange fire. There's a lot of interpretations on what that is. There's really no concrete answers. They offer strange fire before God, and God kills them. And Aaron isn't allowed to mourn. He's not allowed to tear his robes because that would disqualify him from the office. his office. He's, He's not allowed to shave his head. He's not allowed to mourn in any way. And if Aaron breaks any one of this, this tabernacle experiment that, has, that God has just started is done. It's, it's over with. It, it's finished before it can get off the ground. And so at the end of the chapter, there's this little confusing thing about offerings. Uh, he's supposed to offer a sin offering. And with a sin offering, you sacrifice the animal. The priests eat part of it. Part of it gets burnt on the altar. And then the one who brings the sacrifice. This was, pr- this was, a, this this was, was probably part of... the one for the nation. So it wasn't someone who brought the sin offering. It was so that would have gotten part of it because there wasn't an individual that brought the sin offering. And so Aaron burns the whole thing up. Right. It's he probably does an part Ola of, offering. And it's probably part of the still initial sacrifices of the tabernacle because right. they offer the first series of sacrifices to kind of get things kicked off. But then there were more sacrifices that still needed to be offered as part of this uh, this inauguration. And instead of offering the sin sacrifice, as Rebecca said, he offers a burnt sacrifice, a sending sacrifice. He burns the entire thing up on the altar, and Moses freaks out. He right? says, whoa, 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 don't do that, don't do that. You Your sons just died it. because they didn't do what God said, and here you are not doing what God said. And Aaron says something really cryptic. See, today they have brought their sin offering and their sending offering before Adonai, and matters like these have come to me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would it have been right in the eyes of Adonai? And he kind of leaves it there with that little question. Would it have been okay for me to eat the sacrifice, even though I I can't honestly do that right now? I'm supposed to be this model for the people of this mediator, this in-between. I'm supposed to present represent God to the people and represent the people to God. And my sons are dead and I'm not allowed to mourn. At least allow me to mourn in this. God took everything from me. And so I'm just going to give my portion up to him as a recognition. I'm going to worship. Yeah. I'm going to worship in my mourning. And that is such a profound thing. We have to learn when we are in mourning, when we go through trauma, when hardship comes, we have to learn, rather than railing against God, rather than woe is me, we have to learn how to worship in the midst of that pain. We've had to sit with a couple who, through a circumstance, 
their foster child was removed from mm. their custody for a time. Fortunately, in the end, everything worked out well. But in that moment, it was so raw and fresh and excruciating. And we sat there together on the floor in their living room, tears pouring down our faces and praising God in song. Yeah, that was a powerful moment. That right there, the, the warning that we get of grief in the book of Numbers, all of the bad things that end up happening because of their grief. If they had just stopped and worshipped rather than, well, I'm going to get my way. We're going to go back to Egypt. We're going to go do this. We're going to do that. We're going to make this right somehow. We're going to get ours out of this. If they had just stopped and worshipped, it would have been a completely different book. Different story. Different story completely. And but then he says, And naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I returned there. Adonai is given, and Adonai takes away. Blessed be the name of Adonai. And through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he cast reproach on God. And that is the last time we see that kind of statement. No, we see it in the chapter 2 as well. No, in chapter 2 it says he did not sin, did with, not his sin mouth. with his lips. That's true. That's true. It's, it's a slight refinement. But mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, he's he's recognizing his possessions came from God. And if his possessions disappeared, that also, too, is from God. He recognizes God's sovereignty, and he submits to it, uh, which is a, a truly powerful thing. So then in uh, chapter 2, we see a, a repeat once again. The, almost word for word. Almost word for word. The sons of God are, and present themselves to Adonai. Satan is amongst them. is walking to and fro in the earth. Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth. He's perfect and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And Satan says, "Yeah, but oh, uh -uh, you no, don't don't miss something that's important." He says, "And he holds firm to his integrity, mm, yeah. though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason." Without any reason. Without cause. That's profound. Yeah, what's, what's also profound is it says that you incited me against him. When in fact he's the one that brought Job brought up in the Job first place. Up in the first place. He didn't say, he didn't, yeah. hey, come, come tempt my guy. But he right. did say, hey, have you noticed him? He's kind of bragging. He's kind of he like, is. I got a good guy, you know. He is. He is. That's kind of how he's portrayed, which is which is odd. It's awkward. It's it's hard to imagine God acting bragging. in that way. Yeah. But then again, it's a parable, and I'm right. not sure how how much we should read this literally. And so Satan says, "Of course, he hasn't cursed you. You haven't let me touch him. He's flesh." If you let me touch his flesh, oh, he'll definitely turn against you. So God says, all right. Just don't kill him. Just don't kill him. Do what you and will. That's almost worse. It is. I've been on the receiving end of the just don't kill just her. Just don't kill her. Right. I have. And it's, I'm laying there going, I kind of wish you would kill me. 
Let's right. just get it. It's over with. Right. This is this is enough. Well, and that's that's Job's wife is right. The, I kind of just just get it over with. Have, just kill him. Just end it. Yeah. So he's lying in the ashes in the dirt, scraping himself with a broken pottery, which uh Ugh. is a terrible way to have to scratch your sores to to get any kind of relief. Yeah. I mean, this is like monkeypox on steroids. I gotta imagine. <laughs> And it's possible that this is leprosy. Uh, or potentially. There's never maybe. really any it says accurate oils. Exact it doesn't say leprosy though. Way of of describing leprosy. It's a very confusing thing that nobody really has an exact pinpoint on, but right. it is definitely a skin disease that well, he I would, has. I would have to think I, I wouldn't necessarily... I'm not saying that it absolutely is leprosy, but it is a possibility. I think of it more as the boils from the, the Ten Plagues. Oh, yeah, maybe. It's, it's not It's not leprosy, but it's these just sores everywhere that just kind of pop up and, and hurt and itch and ooze. And, and so his wife gives her advice, curse God and I, and he says, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Indeed, should we accept only good from God and not accept evil? And again, that's so profound. That's that's that is something we gotta learn to live with. Uh, we, we gotta remember in the Garden of Eden, we humanity through Adam chose to know good and evil, which means we chose to experience evil. We, we chose just, to have not both. Just know it intellectually, but to know it like one knows their wife, like one knows their children there's a deeper understanding there we chose to know good and evil and so when we experience evil that that was our choice that's our curse that's 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 just our reality mm -hmm. through all this job did not sin with his lips right. now the with his lips i think is important because already we can see the some cracks forming. Yeah, we see a couple of fractures going on. It's in the back of his mind. Like, what in the world, God? What's going on? Why am I in this place? He hasn't said any of that yet. Right. But we know it's coming. But right. he's also just... He's he still is... Keep, he's, he's almost just keeping his mouth shut. So that he doesn't say things that right. he shouldn't. And, and I can identify with that because when we've gone through some of our terrible times, when we've gone through really tough struggles, I just got to shut my mouth. And I know mm -hmm. I, I'm just like, just let it pass because I know right now in this raw emotion, if I open my mouth, I'm going to say something stupid that's just going to make everything worse. Yeah. And so I'm going to shut my mouth. And kind of allow it to happen and process it. And because I know where my mind is in this moment and it is not, not in a good place. Right. And I know that if I open my mouth, I could ruin relationships. I could ruin profession. I could ruin, you know, I could ruin all sorts of parts of my life right now. Right. If I open my mouth. And so I am just going to shut my mouth and continue on. Better to be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove, remove all, all doubt. doubt. Right, right. So enter the three friends of Job. And now, this right here, this is the best of the three friends. Right. This is it. After this, 
they goes are downhill. Not so great. <laughs> right. And and again, this is another clue that kind of makes us think that Job was a really important guy, perhaps a king, mm-hmm. because he's got three men from three different nations who are his friends who are coming to sit with him. And remember, friend is not right. like it's They're it's my buddy. It's my it's my pal. We're going to sit here and just reminisce together. No, this is a patron client relationship. This these guys have some sort of working financial relationship. That's right. what friend implies in this context. So these guys are all, well, not necessarily well-to-do because they could be. So when it came to kings, there's a chance that Job, if he was a king, that he was a suzerain king. And these three friends were vassals. Okay, that makes sense. And so they would have been his vassals who heard, oh, crap, our suzerain is, is going through this terrible time. Let's go sit with him and let's help him and let's... Let's support him in his loss. And so they do. And they come and they lift their voices and they weep with him. And they tear their own robes and they put dust on their own heads. And they just sit. They sit seven down. days and seven nights. And they nights. don't say a word for seven days. Now this is where it's thought that the idea of sitting Shiva came from for Jews. For those who aren't familiar in Jewish culture, when someone dies, the home of the family who has suffered the loss is open for seven days. For anyone, anyone who wants to come and sit with the family and mourn with the family, they can come in and anytime, day or night, they can just walk into the house. Usually they'll bring a gift of food. They'll sit and they'll just mourn for the loss of the family. And it's a, it's actually a beautiful way of dealing with a, a community coming together and dealing with grief and loss. And we get that picture here. They're, they're sitting Shiva with Job. Mm-hmm. They're just coming in. They're not offering advice. They're not trying to help. They recognize he is in pain. And the so most we so can they do. They can't even recognize him. The, yeah. And the most they can do is just sit there and be close and just offer their proximity as a comfort. You know, when I was in college, my next door neighbor that I had lived next to since the time I was three years old saw me and I had been on a certain medication for a while, a long while. And it was drastically affecting how I looked. And she came to my front door. She came to my house, to my front door. And I opened the door and she did not know who I was. That I don't even know you. I don't even recognize you. You're in so much pain. It's insult to injury, really. It would be a, a shocking thing to experience. And so the friends, they came and they sympathized with him. In fact, it says there that they 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 had come to sympathize with him and to comfort him in verse 11. And they, they came for this purpose, to be with him, to sit with him, to to show them their support. And this, this right here, that's a good friend. That's love. That's a good friend. Regardless yeah. of how terrible their advice is in the upcoming chapters, they proved their worth as friends by simply coming 
clearing their schedules for seven days and sitting with them in his pain. And and this is love. Yeah. And when we when we listen to their advice later, which will you'll find out how bad it is. But when we get there, we have to recognize that it genuinely is coming from a place of love. Yeah. No matter how bad the advice actually is. The love is genuinely there. Right. And we don't want to lose sight of that. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's so important. Um, And especially if uh, you go through something terrible and you have people coming to you and giving you terrible advice. Because it's going to happen. Gonna, gonna, gonna happen. It's going to happen. Because people don't know how to give advice. Especially when company something, included. Especially when it comes to something as difficult as grief. Right. So yeah, that's what we're gonna learn through this is we're gonna actually learn what not to say. Right. When it comes to offering advice to those who are in grief. Because the friends, all three of the friends, and then the fourth guy that shows up near the end, they all kind of give some terrible advice. On the surface, it seems it seems alright. Until you get down into the the underlying to what theme it really of what, he's re- what they're really saying. And when you get there, it just really just kind of all falls apart. So that's it for Job chapters one and two. Uh, next week, uh, we will probably just do chapter three, Job's initial lament. There's we'll, enough in there to, to There's enough in there, and we'll, we'll sit with Job. We will show him the honor of sitting with him and hearing his lament and really trying to hear his pain and his sorrow so i hope you look forward to it (laughs) (laughs) but uh yeah we'll see you all again next week until then seek life and all that you do Shalom. shalom thank you for tuning in to derish chai if this content has blessed you and you would like more please consider subscribing liking commenting and sharing with others to find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Darish Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.